Part One, Chapter Sixteen of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part One, Chapter Sixteen. I thought that night as I lay cosily in my dusky room of those old stories by Wilkie Collins that had once upon a time so deeply engrossed my interest, stories in which, because someone had disappeared on a snowy night, or painted his face blue, or locked up a room and lost the key, or broken down in his carriage on a windy night at the crossroads, dozens of people are involved, diaries are written, confessions are made, and all the characters move along different roads towards the same lighted, comfortable inn. That is the kind of story that intrigues me, whether it be written about outside mysteries by Wilkie Collins, or inside mysteries by the great creator of The Golden Bowl, or mysteries of both kinds, such as Henry Gallian has given us. I remember a friend of mine, James Meredith, once saying to me, "'It's no use trying to keep out of things.' as soon as they want to put you in you're in the moment you're born you're done for it's just that spectacle of some poor innocent being suddenly caught into some affair against his will without his knowledge but to the most serious alteration of his character and fortunes that one watches with a delight almost malicious whether it be the woman in white the wings of the dove or the roads that offer it us well, I had now to face the fact that something of this kind had happened to myself. I was drawn in, and I was glad. I luxuriated in my gladness, lying there in my room, under the wavering uncertain light of two candles, hearing the church bells clanging and echoing mysteriously behind the wall. I lay there with a the consciousness of being on the very verge of some adventure, with the assurance, too, that I was to be of use once more to play my part, to fling aside, thank God, that old cloak of apathetic disappointment, of selfish betrayal, of cynical disbelief. Semyonov had brought the old life back to me, and I had shrunk from the impact of it. But he had brought back to me, too, the presences of my absent friends, who, during these weary months, had been lost to me. It seemed to me that, in the flickering twilight, john and marie were bringing forward to me vera and nina and jerry and asking me to look after them i would do my best and while i was thinking of these things vera mikhailovna came in she was suddenly in the room standing there her furs up to her throat her body in shadow but her large grave eyes shining through the candlelight her mouth smiling is it all right she said coming forward I'm not in the way. You're not sleeping. I told her that I was delighted to see her. I've been almost every day, but Marfa told me you are not well enough. She does guard you like a dragon. But tonight Nina and I are going to Rosanov's to a party, and she said she'd meet me here. Shan't I worry you? Worry me? You're the most restful friend I have. I felt so glad to see her that I was surprised at my own happiness. She sat down near to me, very quietly, moving as she always did, softly and surely. I could see that she was distressed because I looked ill, 
but she asked me no tiresome questions, said nothing about my madness in living as I did, always so irritating, as though I were a stupid child, praised the room, admired the Benoit picture, and then talked in her soft, kindly voice. "'We've missed you so much, Nina and I,' she said. I told Nina that if she came tonight, she wasn't to make a noise and disturb you. She can make as much noise as she likes, I said. I like the right kind of noise. We talked a little about politics and England and anything that came into our minds. We both felt, I know, a delightful easy intimacy and friendliness and trust. I had never with any other woman felt such a sense of friendship something almost masculine in its comradeship and honesty. And tonight this bond between us strengthened wonderfully. I blessed my luck. I saw that there were dark lines under her eyes and that she was pale. You're tired, I said. Yes, I am, she acknowledged, and I don't know why. At least I do know. I'm going to use you selfishly, Dirtles. I'm going to tell you all my troubles and ask your help in every possible way. I'm going to let you off nothing. I took her hand. I'm proud, I said, now and always. Do you know that I've never asked anyone's help before? I was rather conceited that I could get on always without it. When I was very small, I wouldn't take a word of advice from anyone. And mother and father, when I was tiny, used to consult me about everything. Then they were killed, and I had to go on alone. And after that, when I married Nicholas, it was I again who decided everything. And my mistakes taught me nothing. I didn't want them to teach me. She spoke that last word fiercely, and through the note that came into her voice, I saw suddenly the potentialities that were in her, the other creature that she might be if she were ever awakened. She talked then for a long time. She didn't move at all. Her head rested on her hand, and her eyes watched me. As I listened, I thought of my other friend Marie, who now was dead, and how restless she was when she spoke, moving about the room, stopping to demand my approval, protesting against my criticism, laughing, crying out. Vera was so still, so wise, too, in comparison with Marie, braver, too, and yet the same heart, the same charity, the same nobility. But she was my friend, and Marie I had loved. The difference in that. And how much easier now to help than it had been then, simply because one's own soul was one's own, and one stood by oneself. How happy a thing freedom is, and how lonely. She told me many things that I need not repeat here. But, as she talked, I saw how, far more deeply than I had imagined, Nina had been the heart of the whole of her life. She had watched over her, protected her, advised her, warned her, and loved her, passionately, jealously, almost madly, all the time. When I married Nicholas, she said, I thought of Nina more than anyone else. That was wrong. I ought to have thought most of Nicholas but I knew that I could give her a home, that she could have everything she wanted, and still she would be with me. Nicholas was only too ready for that. I thought I would care for her until someone came who was worthy of her, and who would look after her far better than I ever could. But the first person who had come was Boris Grogov. He loved Nina from the first moment, in his own careless, conceited, opinionated way. 
"'Why did you let him come so often to the house if you didn't approve of him?' I asked. "'How could I prevent it?' she asked me. "'We Russians are not like the English. "'In England I know you just shut the door and say, "'Not at home.' "'Here, if anyone wanted to come, he comes. "'Very often we hate him for coming, but still there it is. "'It is too much trouble to turn him out. "'Besides, it wouldn't be kind, and anyway they wouldn't go.' You can be as rude as you like here, and nobody cares. For a long while Nina paid no attention to Boris. She doesn't like him. She will never like him, I'm sure. But now, these last weeks, I've begun to be afraid. In some way he has power over her, not much power, but a little. And she is so young, so ignorant, she knows nothing. Until lately she always told me everything. Now she tells me nothing. She's strange with me, angry for nothing, then sorry and sweet again, then suddenly angry. She's excited and wild, going out all the time, but unhappy too. I know she's unhappy. I can feel it as though it were myself. You're imagining things, I said. Now when the wars reach this period, we're all nervous and overstrung. The atmosphere of this town is enough to make anyone fancy that they see anything. Nina's all right. I'm losing her, I'm losing her, Vera cried, suddenly stretching out her hand, as though in a gesture of appeal. She must stay with me. I don't know what's happening to her. Ah, oh, and I'm so lonely without her. There was silence between us for a little, and then she went on. Dirtles, I did wrong to marry Nicholas, wrong to Nina, wrong to Nicholas, wrong to myself. I thought it was right. I didn't love Nicholas. I never loved him, and I never pretended to. He knew that I did not. But I thought then that I was above love, that knowledge was what mattered, ideas saving the world. And he had such ideas, wonderful. There was, I thought, nothing that he would not be able to do, if only he were helped enough. He wanted help in every way. He was such a child, so unhappy, so lonely. I thought that I could give him everything that he needed. Don't fancy that I thought that I sacrificed myself. I felt that I was the luckiest girl in all the world. And still, now when I see that he is not strong enough for his ideas, I care for him as I did then, and I would never let any trouble touch him if I could help it. But if, if... She paused, turned away from me, looking towards the window. If, after all, I was wrong, if, after all, I was meant to love, if love were to come now, real love, now... She broke off, suddenly stood up, and very low, almost whispering, said, I have fancied lately that it might come, and then what should I do? Oh, what should I do? With Nicholas and Nina, and all the trouble there is now in the world, and Russia, I'm afraid of myself, and ashamed. I could not speak. I was utterly astonished. Could it be Bowen of whom she was speaking? No, I saw at once that the idea was ludicrous. But if not, I took her hand. Vera, I said, believe me, I'm much older than you, and I know. Love's always selfish, always cruel to others, always means trouble, sorrow, and disappointment. But it's worth it, even when it brings complete disaster. Life isn't life without it. I felt her hand tremble in mine. 
"'I don't know,' she said. "'I know nothing of it, except my love for Nina. "'It isn't that now there's anybody. "'Don't think that. "'There is no one, no one. "'Only my self-confidence is gone. "'I can't see clearly any more. "'My duty is to Nina and Nicholas, "'and if they are happy, nothing else matters, nothing. "'And I'm afraid that I'm going to do them harm.' "'She paused as though she were listening.' "'There's no one there, is there?' she asked me. "'There, by the door?' "'No, no one. "'There are so many noises in this house. "'Don't they disturb you?' "'I don't think of them now. "'I'm used to them, and, in fact, I like them.' "'She went on. "'It's Uncle Alexei, of course. "'He comes to see us nearly every day. "'He's very pleasant, more pleasant than he has ever been before. "'But he has a dreadful effect on Nicholas.' "'I know the effect he can have,' I said. "'I know that Nicholas has been feeling for a long time "'that his inventions are no use. "'He will never own it to me or to anyone, but I can tell. "'I know it so well. "'The war came, and his new feeling about Russia carried him along. "'He put everything into that. "'Now that has failed him, and he despises himself "'for having expected it to do otherwise. "'He's raging about.' trying to find something that he can believe in. And Uncle Alexei knows that and plays on that. He teases him. He drives him wild and then makes him happy again. He can do anything with him he pleases. He always could. But now he has some plan. I used to think that he simply laughed at people because it amused him to see how weak they can be. But now there's more than that. He's been hurt himself at last, and that has hurt his pride, and he wants to hurt back. It's all in the dark. The war's in the dark, everything. Then she smiled and put her hand on my arm. That's why I've come to you, because I trust you and believe you, and know you say what you mean. Once before Marie had said those same words to me. It was as though I heard her voice again. I won't fail you, I said. There was a knock on the door. It was flung open as though by the wind, and Nina was with us. Her face was rosy with the cold. Her eyes laughed under her little round fur cap. She came running across the room, pulled herself up with a little cry beside the bed, and then flung herself upon me, throwing her arms around my neck and kissing me. "'My dear Nina!' cried Vera. She looked up, laughing. "'Why not? Poor Dirtles, are you better? Biedny, give me your hands. But—' How cold they are, and there are drafts everywhere. I've brought you some chocolates and a book. My dear, Vera cried again, he won't like that, pointing to a work of fiction by a modern Russian literary lady whose heart and brain are of the succulent variety. Why not? She's very good. It's lovely. All about impossible people. Dirtles, dear, I'll give up the party. We won't go. We'll sit here and entertain you. I'll send Boris away. We'll tell him we don't want him. Boris, cried Vera. Yes, Nina laughed a little uneasily, I thought. I know you said he wasn't to come. He'll quarrel with Rosanoff, of course. But he said he would, and so how was one to prevent him? You're always so tiresome, Vera. I'm not a baby now, nor is Boris. If he wants to come, he shall come. Vera stood away from us both. I could see that she was very angry. I had never seen her angry before. "'You know that it's impossible, Nina,' she said. "'You know that Rosanoff hates him. 
and besides there are other reasons you know them perfectly well nina nina stood there pouting tears were in her eyes you're unfair she said you don't let me do anything you give me no freedom i don't care for boris but if he wants to go he shall go i'm grown up now you have your lawrence let me have my boris my lawrence asked vera yes you know that you're always wanting him to come always looking for him i like him too i like him very much but you never let me talk to him you never quiet nina vera's voice was trembling her face was sterner than i'd ever seen it you're making me angry i don't care how angry i make you it's true you're impossible now why shouldn't i have my friends i've nobody now you never let me have anybody and I like Mr. Lawrence. She began to sob, looking the most desolate figure. Vera turned. You don't know what you've said, Nina, nor how you've hurt. You can go to your party as you please. And before I could stop her, she was gone. Nina turned to me, a breathless, tearful face. She waited. We heard the door below closed. Oh, Durdles, what have I done? Go after her. Stop her, I said. Nina vanished, and I was alone. My room was intensely quiet. End of Part 1 Chapter 16